0: Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian
1: and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Boris Jovanov.
0: Um... Pastor Ashley presented the first two, and we, we, we've been looking at kind of, um, we're calling it the series of The Pillars. And so there are seven pillars that, that would be kind of our foundational doctrines. And I guess just by way of introduction, I feel like the word doctrine has unfairly copped a dirty word. And so many say like, well, I love Jesus, but I hate doctrine." But to me personally, I find that sentence really difficult to compute because the image that I have of Jesus is actually painted by our doctrines. I don't believe that God is a sadistic God who tortures people forever and ever and ever, right? And it's interesting, it's kinda to me like saying I love this painting, just not the brush strokes that made it. And so through these doctrines, this is not about superiority, this is not This is us, they are rubbish. But this is essentially, in every single one of it, you get an image of God and who he is. And by God's grace, what we're trying to do is present an accurate image of God so that we are not fearfully worshipping the wrong image of God or fashioning him in our own mind, but submitting to what the word reveals about God. And so Ash, he preached on the scriptures, which is the basis for all of our beliefs, And that reveals that God is a God who doesn't just make and abandon, but God who is continually revealing his will. Last week, we went through an immensely important topic, and that was salvation. How, according to scripture, are we saved? Um, And the task for me today is the sanctuary. Now, from all the doctrines that we have, the sanctuary really is the distinct one. So there are many Seventh-day Baptists, for example, who, who keep Saturday, or you've got Jehovah's Witnesses who also believe in soul sleep and not the immortality of the soul, as the Bible teaches. Um, there are many teachings that we share with other Christians, but from my understanding, the doctrine of the sanctuary is really the number one doctrine, or the only doctrine, I should say, that really is not held by any other denomination, This is a massive topic to cover, and I don't have a massive amount of time to cover it, so I wanna just cover some specific parts of it. Some have said over the years that the investigative judgment or the pre-Advent judgment is just musings of man's minds as opposed to it actually being how scripture reveals God functioning. And so I want to share with you today that the investigative judgment is not just a one-off event or just some random thing that is just Adventist ideology, but rather I want to demonstrate that the process of an investigative judgment is exactly how God has consistently functioned from the very first time we see in Scripture how he deals with sin to the very end of how he deals with sin. Do you want to go on this journey with me and see that this is actually a consistently biblical um, expression of how God functions. So before we do that, I just invite you to bow your heads and pray with me one more time, and we'll get into the word. Heavenly Father, we wanna come to you, acknowledging that we know that you have the truth, that you are the truth, and that we are merely seekers. And so Lord, may the Holy Spirit that inspired the Bible be present with us right now. Illuminate our minds that we can come to a true understanding. And Father, as we look at this beautiful doctrine, of the investigative judgment. May our hearts be drawn to you, and may we be excited about this judgment. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 3. Let's turn there. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis what chapter? 3. There we go. Genesis chapter 3. Now, I am going to have to ask you to excuse me a little bit if you are not familiar with Genesis chapter three. There'll be some things that I'm gonna be assuming you know just so that we can get through the message. And if any of that stuff you're actually not familiar with, feel free to ask anyone around you and say, I need help understanding this. And I'm sure that they'd be more than happy to oblige to help you in that. So Genesis chapter three, this is the chapter in where sin enters the human race. And so God has told them to stay away from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they didn't. And Eve gets deceived into eating and then Adam makes that rebellious choice and he eats and all of a sudden they are feeling separation, they are feeling shame, they are feeling all the things that sin makes you feel. Have you ever noticed how sin works and how the devil uses this? Before you sin, somehow the temptation in the mind goes to a place where nothing can go wrong. But then after you sin, the devil uses that same thing to convince you that nothing can ever be right again. And on both sides of this side of sin is a false deception from Satan. It can go wrong, and yet praise Jesus when it does go wrong, he has a way to make it right. And look at what he does. Genesis Chapter 3, and let's begin in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife did what? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, every time I talk about this, I have to point this out because I think it's very plain. I think sin makes, sin makes people dumb. Now, do you believe Adam and Eve were smarter than you and I? Yes or no? Do you reckon after thousands of years of sin that that might have made some kind of effect on our minds? Surely they are superior-minded than we are. Do you believe you can hide from God? But what about behind a tree? You find this happening often, that the first sin is often just a domino effect or a whole bunch of other sillier decisions that you would never have made if you didn't make that first one. Sin just has this way of spiraling down silliness where your brain's not actually thinking the way you'd normally think and gets into this weird panic mode. And so they're in this strange panic mode, knowing they can't hide from God, they still choose to try hard from Him behind a tree. And look at how God deals with them. Verse nine. Then the Lord God called Adam and said to him, where are you? Question. Did God not know? Is this maybe a passage in scripture that reveals that if you pick the right tree, he really might not know where you are? Does God not know where they are? Or does he know? He knows, and yet what's he doing? He's inquiring. Another word you could use is he's investigating. Verse 10. So he, this is Adam, so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Did he not know? Does God not know? So far, it seems like a bit of a, if you take this literally as though he doesn't know, is he really all knowing? But if he's all knowing, he's asking questions that he already knows the answers to, yes or no? Who told you that you were naked? And he goes on and he says, in verse 10 here, But in verse 11, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Did God not know? He knew, yes? Yes. Not only did he know, he knew what that meant for him. From the second they ate that apple, guess what Jesus knew he had to do? He knew what was before him from that moment. And yet, with all that knowledge, what's he doing? He's asking, he's inquiring, he's investigating. And so he gets another answer. Verse 12. Then the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? What's God doing again? He's asking, he's investigating, is he not? And so she tells him what she'd done. And then in verse 14, the Bible says, so the Lord God said to the servant, because you've done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly, you shall go. And you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because... You have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. What was this last part that I just read? It was the execution of the judgment, wasn't it? So notice, the very first time Sin appears, how does God deal with it? He first comes and does what? Investigates. And once the investigation's done, what does he do? He executes. Do you see this? Who did he investigate for? He's all knowing. What does he have to investigate? It's obviously not for his benefit. Whose benefit is it for? It's Adam and Eve's. Is it not? It's Adam and Eve so that they know that the change that's about to happen, they know why it happened and they know that it's fair that it happened and they know the rationale behind it, you follow? This story is very different. This story is very different and the image of God is very different if it's a case of (laughs) cursed, cursed, cursed. Say there's none of this investigation that takes place and just the execution, just the judgments are handed out. Who is the only one that's left with more questions than when this thing began? Adam and Eve. But when you go through the process of investigation for their sake, guess what? Even though there's something happening that you don't like, your questions as to why it's happening are what? They're answered, you follow? Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, story of Cain and Abel. Cain kills his younger brother. And look specifically at verse 9 and 10. The Bible says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? Did God not know? Of course he knew. He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother cries out to me from the ground, and so now you are cursed from the earth. Same pattern. There's a sin that was committed. What did God come do? Investigated, and after the investigation was done, what happened? Judgment was given, yes? This is not just two instances. It's over and over and over and over again. Genesis 18 and 19, we see the same pattern. Now, we're not gonna read these two chapters for the sake of time, But we see the same method because most of Genesis 18 and 19 describes God's investigations and deliberations prior to his punitive actions on Sodom and Gomorrah. God doesn't just come to Sodom and Gomorrah and is there? But there's this investigative process. But for whose benefit? Is it God who doesn't know and he's having to figure out what's the right thing? Or is God in every single situation taking a lesser being, a being that doesn't have all knowledge on a journey so that when that strange thing happens or when that judgment's made, the questions are answered before you get to that place? You see that? In every single case throughout scripture, if you chop off the investigation and just come judgments, you're left with more questions than you have answers. Yet God, in his infinite wisdom and his infinite patience towards us, he chooses to go slow. Why does he choose to go slow? Why does he choose to go slow? Okay, a chance to repent. What is God's ultimate goal? The ultimate goal. I shared this question in my Sabbath school class that that I was a part of this morning. If there was a button right here on this piano, there was a button, you hit it, and all of a sudden, there was no such thing as sin in the world, and no one could choose to sin. If you hit that button, would that be a perfect world? Even if God programmed us so that we would feel like it's our choice, so experientially it feels like we just love God, from the point of view of God who wants a relationship, it's nothing more than me programming my iPad to every morning tell me it loves me. And let's just say I could be a super duper programmer where I could make this thing feel like it's coming from him, from the iPad, and that the iPad could feel like it's genuine. From the perspective of the creator, that would be nothing more than telling yourself that you love you. You follow? So the second you hit that button and you've got a world where sin doesn't exist and no one can sin, guess what you don't have? Freedom. Freedom. Right? You don't have freedom. The perfect world is not, a, is not defined as a world absent of sin. That's only one part of the equation. It's a world where everyone is freely able to choose to sin, and yet no one ever chooses to sin because they love God, because they know God, because He's won their trust. That is a perfect world. It's a world where you have freedom. Freedom and yet you exercise your freedom in submission and worship to God. You follow that? In order to get there, you can't finish with more questions than answers. You follow? You have to finish with answering the questions And God, yes, God knows the end from the beginning, and yet throughout Scripture, every single time he has to deal with someone, he goes slower for what purpose? To investigate. But why does an all-knowing God need to investigate? The simple answer is, he doesn't. But guess who does need to go through the process of investigation? Us. Does that make sense? Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Oh, this time's getting away from me, guys. Daniel chapter 7. And so Daniel's in vision and he's seeing the different powers. Right, And they represent Babylon, Persia, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. And then he comes to this divided ten horns, and he sees among those ten horns a different type of power. And it says this in verse 8. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. He's seeing what we know to be the little horn power, which if you study this prophecy out, is actually the power of the Antichrist. And so Daniel sees this dreadful power that's not just warring against the saints of earth, but it's warring against God in heaven and he's blaspheming against God. And look at the very next place that he gets taken to vision. The very next verse, the Bible says this, and I watched till thrones were put in place. Is thrones here singular or plural? Is there one throne or are there many thrones? There are many thrones. He watched and he saw. He saw them just laying out thrones. Many thrones, there are thrones, plural. And then it says, And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. And then his throne was a fiery flame. Do you see how it's separating the Ancient of Days throne from all the other thrones? And then it goes on, and it says this A fiery stream issued and came forth before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times 10,000 stood before him. We understand these to be the angels of heaven. And it says this, and the court was what? Seated. So, don't miss this. There is a judgment happening in heaven, yes? There's a judgment happening in heaven. And Daniel sees a bunch of thrones. And then in comes the Ancient of Days on his fiery throne. And then before the Ancient of Days is these thousands and thousands, ten thousands times ten thousands of angels. And then the Bible says, and they were seated. What did they sit on? What did they sit on? Well, the only seating object that's described is. Thrones. So you have God on his throne and the angels on their thrones sitting, and the Bible says the court was seated, and what was opened? And the books were open. We are told that the great controversy started in heaven and it made its way down to earth. But in the plan of redemption, God has found a way to separate the, infectation or the infection of sin away from us so that then we can join him in heaven, yes? Who will that affect? Well, surely it'll affect the citizens of heaven, yes? And so guess what God is doing? The Bible tells us that he's sitting down with the citizens of heaven going through this investigative process of who's going to come to heaven. For whose sake? Is it, is it God who needs to investigate? No, it seems like he's bringing heaven on this journey so that when we get there, there are no questions about us, but the questions are answered before we get to that judgment time. Does that make sense? Unfortunately, I have heard this teaching being taught as this scary thing of like, well don't you know judgment has come and angels are looking at everything and every single one of your deeds, they're all being examined. And the implications that come out of that, well if your deeds aren't all perfectly lined up, guess what you're gonna end up being in the judgment? What that is doing is talking about the sanctuary without considering the sanctuary. In the sanctuary service on the Day of Atonement, who were the only ones that were kicked out and lost? The ones who didn't go in the judgment, right? It was the ones who abstained from partaking in the Day of Atonement. They were the only ones who were kicked out from amongst the people, yes or no? In fact, the way to be saved was to make sure you partake in the judgment, yes? You follow? The only way to be saved was to partake in the judgment because this judgment, the Bible says, is a judgment that's in favor of the saints. Are you following? I might lose some of you here, but I'll do my best not to. In the sanctuary service, there are two main types of services. Some of you will be familiar, some won't. It's called the daily, right? And then the yearly service. What are they called? Daily and then yearly. Now, put very simply, as simply as I can kind of fathom it myself, the daily was about daily putting sins into the sanctuary, okay? So when you sin, you get an animal, you bring it, you confess your sins, the priest takes the blood, puts it into the sanctuary, and all year, sins coming into the sanctuary, into the sanctuary, into the sanctuary, into the sanctuary, yes? That's the daily. What is that? Daily. Daily. Then there's a yearly service, and that is the Day of Atonement, or the Investigative Judgment, where that year, the sins are coming out of the sanctuary, yes? Now, the Yearly, where the sins are coming out of the sanctuary, it also has a two-part service. All right, so let's go to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. And so this whole chapter, chapter 16, is the typical Day of Atonement. This is where the Day of Atonement took place. Now, the priest would have to make a sacrifice for himself because he was a sinful man, but then after that was done, there would be two goats that are picked and they'd cast lots, and one would be the Lord's goat and the other one would be what we call Azazel, yeah? The Day of Atonement was split into two parts of the service. The first part was making atonement, or in other words, making God's people one with God. And then once that was finished, there was a second goat that was brought in where Aaron would place his hands on that goat and that goat would be sent out into the wilderness. And we'll just read this. In verse 20, the Bible says, and when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, the altar he shall bring the live goat and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and he shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. So don't miss this, don't miss this, please. In the day of atonement, there were two judgments. One was atonement. One was a judgment of salvation, yes? Yes? And then after the salvation was done, there was a second judgment of condemnation. Are you following that? There was a goat that came and he made, the sacrifice of this goat made the people one with God and it atoned for all the sins of the sanctuary and all the people that partook in the judgment. And then after that was done, there was another goat and the, sins and iniquities and condemnation was placed on that goat and it was sent out to die alone in the wilderness, yes? Follow this with me and try to make some sense of it. Go to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14 and look at verse 6, Revelation chapter 14 and look at verse 6. The Bible says, And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. To every nation, tribe, tongue and people saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment, what's the next word? Has come. In other words, Judgment is here, yes? Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter four. 1 Corinthians chapter four, pardon me. 1 Corinthians chapter four. And look at verse five. 1 Corinthians chapter four and verse five. Revelation 14, it says, judgment has come, Yes? And look at verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the time, until when? Until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. Are you seeing this kind of apparent tension? The Bible says very clearly in Revelation 14, judgment has come, yes? But in 1 Corinthians, it says judge nothing until the time when the Lord comes. Was the Lord here, yes or no? Has the second coming happened, yes or no? No, but there's a judgment happening now according to Revelation 14, but there's apparently a judgment that won't happen until Jesus comes. Are you following, yes or no? This is not a contradiction at all. This is not a contradiction at all. We're in the first part of the judgment, which is the judgment of salvation. In other words, the way you're saved is by putting your sins on Jesus. And if your sins are in Jesus, if your sins are in the sanctuary, guess what? They will be atoned for. You follow? who participates in this judgment, the judgment is salvation, you follow? But we are told that after Jesus comes back, there commences a judgment. And if you wanna see this played out, look at Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Now, for those who've studied the Bible before and have studied this topic, I'm just going to ask a simple question I ask that you call it out. When did the pre-Advent judgment begin? Come on, Seventh-day Adventists, this is us. When did the pre-Advent judgment begin according to prophecy? 1844. When does it end? Okay. I actually really enjoy that. When did it happen? 1844. When's it end? Um, When it comes back. No, no, I'm not looking for a date. (laughs) According to the Bible, it starts in 1844, yes? But in the anti type, when does it end? It's not when Jesus comes. Because in the type, when does it end? When Azazel is destroyed in the wilderness, yes? And that represents Satan. Are you following? Now don't miss this, there is a cleansing of the sanctuary, in other words, an atoning, in other words, saving. There is a period of saving and that ends at the second coming and then begins a second judgment, a judgment of condemnation, you follow? And at the end of that millennium, Those who've not chosen Jesus, or in other words, those who didn't choose to be in this judgment end up in this judgment, you follow? It's not judgment that we should be afraid of. It's what is the purpose of this judgment, yes? And we are in the window of time. We are in the space of time where God is in the heavenly sanctuary investigating in front of the angels to take them on a journey as to why, if you choose Jesus, you will be in heaven and why that's okay. You follow? There's nothing to fear about this judgment because the purpose of it is atonement. And it's not till after that's all sorted that we come to Revelation 20. And look what the Bible says in verse four. Let's see if it reminds you of any other passage we've read so far. And I saw what? Singular or plural? And I saw thrones. And they that sat on him and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and did what? Reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Jump down to verse, um, pardon me, sorry. Verse 12, this is at the end of this time period. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and what was open? And what was open? Books are open. Are you guys seeing similarities, yes or no? In Daniel chapter seven, we're introduced to thrones, yes? And the Ancient of Days is there, in other words, God is there on his throne, and then the angels seat on thrones and partake with God in this judgment, yes? And the purpose of this judgment is what? Salvation. But then after Jesus comes back or when Jesus comes back, the verdict of that judgment is, here are those who've given their sins to me and he takes them to heaven, yes? And after that's all sealed, there is a question of what do we do with them now? And there is a second judgment as we see in the the day of atonement, a condemnation, a judgment of condemnation. You follow? Here's my point. The word judgment, we've just told ourselves that that's a bad word. But it's not. All it means is decisions are being made. That's what it means. Decisions are being made. And we are told that since 1844, there are decisions being made, not about who's lost, who's lost, who's lost. It's not. It's who's gonna participate in the judgment because who participates in this judgment, guess what happens? They get atoned. You follow? Some of you don't believe me. Go to John chapter 3, and this will be my last passage. John chapter 3. Let's start in verse 16. This is probably the most known Bible verse in all Scripture, and it seems to be in all cultures. <laughs> wherever you go around, well, at least wherever I've gone around the world, it seems to be a very well-known verse. John chapter 3, verse 16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's beautiful, isn't it? But look at this. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world. Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? He didn't come into the world to condemn the world. Why? Well, he goes on, it says, but that the world through him might be saved. Well, why did he not come to condemn the world? Look at verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in him is what? Is what? Is condemned what? Already. Why would God have to come and condemn the condemned? You follow this? Jesus says, I'm not here to condemn you. (laughs) I don't need to. You're already condemned. But I came so that if you believe in me, you might have eternal life. This needs to sink in, man. Let's just say hypothetically, my wife and I win the lotto. Now, we don't play the lotto, but the reality is, statistically, we pretty much got the same chances of winning as those who do. And say we buy a house in Salt, right? Just south of Kingsliff, along the beach, beautiful, $4 million, we're there. It's got a beautiful playground there, really safe for kids. And we get the newspaper delivered to us now because now we can afford that. And we read in the front cover that there is a trial happening in the Tweed Council and they will be discussing or they'll be deciding whether or not there's going to be high-rise apartments put in that park for the homeless. When I read that, is that good news or bad news? Come guys, let's be honest. That $4 million is going to be worth $2 million pretty quick and that safe neighborhood that my kids can just play around with and just come home at dusk, well, that's kind of gone because we're going to have a bunch of, right? Yes or no? Come on, no one's wanting to put all that money into an investment to to, to hear that next door there's going to be government housing for the homeless. Yes or no? Now, let's just say I'm walking down surface paradise because I'm homeless. And i am bin diving for food because I don't have another choice. And I stumble into the newspaper of that day, because someone threw it away, and I open the front cover, and it says that in the Tweed Council right now, there is a judgment going on, there is a trial going on, and they will be discussing, they'll be deciding whether or not they're going to create high-rise housing in salt for the homeless. When I read that, is it good news or bad news? The reason so many of us are afraid of the doctrine of the judgment is because we don't realize we're the homeless guy. You think that you have something to lose. And if your life gets looked at, then God will figure out how messed up it actually is and then you lose heaven. No, 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 you don't have heaven, man. We are condemned. We were condemned before Jesus ever came onto the scene, you follow? If you're at the bottom and then you hear of news that there could be a trial, what is the only place that that trial could take you? Up, you follow? We're lost man. Humanity is lost and then comes Jesus. Not to condemn because he doesn't need to. We're already condemned. But it begins the process of salvation. And there is an investigation taking place, not about whether you're good enough, but whether you're in it. See, because right now is the window of time. Now is the time to come into the judgment and let God atone you and make you one with your Lord so that when he returns, you can go be with him. There are so many false theologies out there. One of them is secret rapture. And the worst part of secret rapture is not that the second coming's a secret, which we're gonna learn in a future session, that that's not true either. The worst part about that doctrine is their understanding of the Armageddon. See, because they believe that if you miss out on the second coming, if you're willing to go to war for God, there's a second chance. My father-in-law believes that with all his mind. And God is tugging at his heart day after day, day after day. There's been times where he picks up the great controversy and he's reading it and you can see he wants to. He's, convi- he's convicted about it, yeah? Yeah. And he said to me, he said, Boris, I can't do it now. But don't worry. I'll be willing to fight for God at the Armageddon. I'll see you there anyway. That's a horrible, horrible deception. You know why? Because he has a chance to be saved and he's not taking it while it's the only chance. You follow? That's the case now. The judgment taking place now is a judgment made in favor of the saints. You don't have to worry about condemnation in this judgment. You just have to worry about being in the judgment because the ones who sat in sackcloth and ashes and placed their sins in the sanctuary, when that part of the service was done, guess what? They were atoned for. You don't have to worry about condemnation. It's our natural state. But what you can worry about is salvation because that's what God's offering us now. You follow? And I think it's important to understand. Well, the Bible teaches about our state. We're the homeless man. You follow? We're the homeless man. The angels in heaven, they're the ones living in salt. And so God goes through an investigative process so that the angels of heaven rejoice with sincerity of heart for you coming there too. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that is very good news. It's not a stick to scare people into heaven. It's to open their eyes that there's finally a way in. You catch that? Jesus didn't come to condemn. He didn't need to because we're condemned already. Well, if he didn't come to condemn, if there's not a judgment for condemnation now, what's it for? Tell me, what's it for? Salvation. So won't you give your sins to Jesus so that you can be made with your God now? Don't wait for the next judgment. You don't want to be part of that one. Now's the one that you want to be in because the purpose of this is those who are here, who are with me, who are in me, they are saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, the sanctuary was the key that unlocked a whole system of truth, and so it's so difficult, if not impossible, to try open the door to this whole system of truth in one little session of a sermon. But Father, I pray that others, people's eyes, just like my eyes, have been open to your goodness, have been open to the good news of this judgment, because Lord, you are not a God who needs to condemn. We've condemned ourselves already. So why are you here, Lord? Why have you come down? The only possible reason be, can be because you wanna save us. And so Lord, I want to say, I wanna be in this judgment, save me. And Father, if there's anyone else in this church in their hearts and their minds right now who wanna be in this judgment, save them, do that for them too. Father, like David, we wanna pray, judge us, O Lord, because now is the day. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Father, we want to give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was made available by the Bar Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their Facebook page. Wollomba, Seventh-day Adventist Church.
2: Sanctuary, he's purified.
1: 3ABN's album Pillows of Our Faith Volume 1 that was In the Sanctuary coming up next the preacher's daughters will sing the prayer folks. It's lovely to be with you again today to share one of my poems. My name is William Ackland, and the title to this one, which has actually been set to music, is Forevermore Your Love. O Father God, Creator, Saviour, King, look down upon us as to you we sing. With hearts of love we praise your holy name. Forevermore your love will be the same that same kind grace to us you have made known and gave us faith as in your way we've grown, that in your heaven, as angels praise your name, forevermore your love will be the same. That same bright hope will keep us in your way, shall be the light to guide us to that day. So, Father God, revive faith's faltering flame, Forevermore your love will be the same. We look around us in another's eyes and see the sadness in the bravest guise. Only, dear Lord, can you remove our pain. Forevermore your love will be the same. Now look I to a nearby flowering bed and see the light and colours there you shed. Gladly I go with joy across the plain forevermore your love will be the same. When now I think of days so long ago, when as a child so carefree all aglow, never did I think of sad days to come, forevermore your love will be the same. Now, as the twilight says, farewell today, and we prepare for nighttime come what may, with hearts of love, We praise your holy name. Forevermore, your love will be the same.
0: It's been a pleasure bringing you this program
1: here
2: on 3ABN Australia Radio.